All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this evening. Thank you for making us a family. Thank you for giving us a place like this of solitude and peace and quiet, Father, and comfort. We know these are blessings that aren't necessarily permanent, Father, but we're so grateful for the time that you've given us or given them to us, Father. We're just overwhelmed by your grace, your mercy, your love each and every day. May we never become familiar with it. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this evening. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit and we're praying for their return. Your will be done, of course, in your timing. Father, we pray also for those that are still in this world that are lost without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith, Father, before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a time to rejoice, time to behold, time to sit back and be replenished. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, a month in review. Uh, tonight's message is a review of this past month's curriculum here at North Christian Church. Um, if you've been following along, you know that there have been several facets to this curriculum. For example, up here on the board, I'm just going to lay it out for you. This is what it's looked like over the past month here. Not always this kind of uh, sort of, you know, collective of different topics although they are woven together with a major theme, as we'll get to in a moment. But this is what it looks like. You know, we've had messages, seven of them on the other side of grace. That's been the dominant feature this past month in the curriculum. Uh, of course, we had the Resurrection Sunday special, which always brings to the forefront the linchpin of our faith. We had a couple of blogs, the search for peace, the sphere of God. Another blog, A Grateful Heart is a Blessed Heart. And then finally, The Supernatural Fruit of Patience was um, a message. And so there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and when you do take this sort of bird's eye view of our curriculum, um, of just this past month's messages and blogs, what do you see? Knowing what you know, having most of you having listened to or read these blogs and these messages, um, what do you see? That's the question on the table. And you think back just a month's time. Personally, I see several things, but one obvious thread at least, uh, and you may perceive others as well, I encourage you to think that way, but one obvious thread that I see is that our holy, sovereign, loving God is beckoning us to follow Jesus. I mean to really follow him, not just in word, but in deed. I see God sending us strong reminders about the sphere we find him in, and that we've been invited into that sphere for all of eternity. 
I see him guiding us towards the only way of living that results in true peace and contentment. Along the way, he is filling our hearts with gratitude. And that's just for starters. That's just for starters. Gratitude, you know, not just for the ability to, let's say, receive grace. It's one of our favorite pastimes. But also the supernatural ability to give it. To love others in such a way that the giver is blessed even more than the receiver. And along the way, he's taught us that the supernatural fruit of the Spirit includes love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Galatians 5, 22-23. What I hear resoundingly from this past month's messages and blogs is that, and this is what I have in my notes, folks, this is real. This is not academics. This is not playtime. This is real. That's what I see. Being a believer in Christ isn't supposed to be some ethereal hope that we cling to while we melt away down here on earth. Being a believer in Christ gives us fortitude, strength, power. It makes us resolute, firm in our faith, able to stand up against whatever this world throws at us. And all the while, as we abide in the sphere of God, enjoying this peaceful fruit of righteousness, just as joy and most of all, love exists This is what I glean from this past month's messages up here on the board. Again, this is our curriculum. Grace, resurrection, sphere of peace, or the search for peace, the sphere of God, a grateful heart is a blessed heart, and the supernatural fruit of patience from Sunday. So this evening's message will be a quick recap on this past month's going on, or goings on here at North Christian Church. And this is to get you, not me, not just a brain dump, not just my thoughts on it, but to get you all thinking about what God's been working out specifically in your own souls. What about all this? What about this curriculum? What do you see? What has he been saying to you? What has he been enacting in your life? So this is to get you all thinking about what God's been working out specifically in your own souls. As Scott mentioned on Sunday, these are indeed some of the greatest perspectives to have because they are big picture perspectives. And I don't know about you, but that has been maybe one of the, my favorite features of this ministry for what, 12 years now? that the Spirit has demanded that we take a step back 
and look at the big picture. He's demanded that this perspective, you know, abide in us. That's where the freedom lies. That's where it all comes together. Not to be doctrinal snobs. Not to go to church to say, oh my God, I can remember scripture. I can recite this book end to end. Oh, I can tell you multisyllabic words and and made up man-made doctrines and so I can act highfalutin at my friend's house when we talk about the Bible. This is about simplicity, purity of devotion to Christ. Amen? That's what it's about. This is real. This isn't make-believe. This isn't School time. This isn't snobbery time. This isn't ivory tower time. I'm done with that. You? Done with that. Trying to oppress people. It's an abomination. I've got other words, but they're improper. Big picture perspectives. It's these perspectives that make all we've learned fit together in one simple, cohesive way. I used to hate not being able to read my Bible and feel comfortable doing it. I used to hate it. I say, something's wrong with me. I'm a bright guy by all their means. I mean, I'm not being, I'm being honest and humble. I don't know, I hated it. What was the problem? You tell me. Most of you could come up here and preach this right now. And say, before I had a good grip on the big picture. And so these perspectives, they bring it all together in one simple, cohesive, unified way. I am convinced that the more of this big picture you see, the more the Bible will make sense to you. And that's all I really care about. Listen, I could die tomorrow. Isn't that how we started the other side of grace? I could be gone tomorrow. I could get run over by one of you in that parking lot, which is why I park over there, just saying. (laughs) I could get run over tomorrow, and this ends. I don't want to leave you guys and, and, and think, oh, wow, I bound them up even worse. I want you to be comfortable going home that very evening. Hopefully you'll be a little sad. Right? A little bit. And say, you know what? I have no problem reading my own Bible now. I've been set free. I can open up my own Bible. Do I appreciate? Do I know I need the spiritual gift of a pastor to guide me? Yeah, don't forget where you came from. Do I know that's a necessary function in my life? Sure. But I want to know that, from my perspective, that you're equipped to read your own Bible, to go have your own fellowship, sit under a tree, with a cup of coffee and have the time of your life. So, yeah, I'm convinced that the more of this big picture you see, the more the Bible will make sense to you. In other words, whenever you sit down to read your Bible, you'll be excited because it'll be like putting on your favorite pair of, you know, comfy slippers. Think about it this way. If and when you're ever asked, where's your favorite place to vacation? 
God wants you to answer in the sphere of God. And the beauty of this vacation spot is that you can abide in it as much as you like, even while you're at work or school or doing chores around the house, whatever it may be. You can always be at this vacation spot. Of course, in heaven, it'll be a permanent residence. Now, with that said, we do need to do a quick review of our curriculum. That's just what he's been saying to me. And I know it's not exclusive, and I know it's not all-inclusive to what he's been saying to you. Just my two cents. So let's do a quick review of our curriculum, starting with the most recent Sunday's message titled Supernatural Fruit of Patience. And, you know, firstly, one has to wonder why the Spirit listed patience as number four in the list of nine, you know, the nine facets of the Spirit. I reference Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It goes love, joy, peace, and then what? Patience. So you got like the big three, right? Love, joy, peace. Those are kind of like the big three. And then right there, in very close proximity, is what? Patience. Patience. So you got to wonder. I think it's pretty telling that patience is sidled up next to the so-called big three. So here's an opening principle from Sunday's message up here on the board. The supernatural fruit of patience. Patience is such a wonderful virtue to grow in because it can take us through anything in life. Knowing if we simply wait with faith, the Lord rescues us in the end. And I really like the choice of words here too, especially the word rescue, because it's such an appropriate word. It implies salvation and deliverance from peril. I mean, if there wasn't any peril, you wouldn't require rescue, right? So I like the idea, the word rescue, in context here. Why? Because we live in a world that hates Jesus Christ, hates him, and therefore hates anyone who stands firm in his good name. And the problem is that we are hopeless without God's power to save us, to rescue us. If we attempt to save ourselves or rescue ourselves by ourselves, outside of the grace of God, we fail miserably and we live in fear. And I'm speaking about the unhealthy kind of fear, you know, fear of man versus the healthy kind of fear, which is the fear of God. And so we need this salvation. We need rescuing from the unholy sphere of experience that the world tries to hook us back into daily. The world does not like, matter of fact, it hates Jesus Christ. It does not want you representing him in any way, shape, or form. And so it's constantly trying to rope us back into the unholy sphere, which is the world or the cosmos. So we need to be rescued from what the Bible calls trouble. Go to Psalm 37, 39. 
Psalm 37, 39. So from Sunday's message, we need to be rescued from what the Bible calls trouble. Psalm 37, 39. Let's think about that for a moment. 37, 39 reads, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. In other words, your rescue, your deliverance depends on your dependence on the Lord. You going to Him because you're hopeless and you're helpless without Him. So in context here, God knows his own children better than we know ourselves even. And so patience is at the top of the list when it comes to how he goes about rescuing us experientially. And so now we have this sort of crossroads. We have this sort of collision between patience and rescue So patience is at the top of the list when it comes to how he goes about rescuing us experientially. For example, as we've been noting with Job, he might allow certain prolonged suffering to test our faith. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we talking about being rescued? (laughs) Well, I equate rescue from all kinds of suffering. Well, you don't know the Bible then. I guess. We've been noting this with Job. He might allow certain prolonged suffering to test our faith with. Now here's the qualifier. Why would he do such a thing? With the end result being the annealing. Remember the metallurgical concept of annealing? With the end result of annealing said faith. In other words, if you want real faith, it's got to be cemented. It's got to be annealed. It's got to be put under the fire. Otherwise, it's not faith. You just think you have faith. And then the first time it gets tested, guess what happens? Poof. You say, I guess I didn't have it. And God goes, I know. That's why I put you to the test. So you would know it. So, he might put us under prolonged suffering to test our faith, but more than that, to anneal it. Remember, uh, what is it, 1 Peter 1.7? So that we can see the proof of our faith. So that we can be convicted of our own faith, our own measure of it. In other words, we confess it, say the same thing, homo legeo, as God. That's where he wants to get us. He doesn't want us to be delusional. And so he tests us for the sake of annealing our faith. Again, which makes it all the more potent and effective after the testing subsides. So right out of the gate, we conclude that rescuing is actually 
a function of suffering. Rescuing is actually a function of suffering. Now, I was thinking about this before class. Um, the By His Well ministry, that's Monica's ministry, uh, just posted a really nice blog that speaks to the, this connection directly up here on the board. It's called Suffering is Good. That's a blog that uh, was written on April 17th. I certainly encourage you to read it. Very well written. Suffering is good. Again, the paradox here is that rescuing requires suffering. Because without faith, you're not rescued from anything. But to get real faith, it has to be annealed. How? Suffering. So rescuing, believe it or not, requires going through the fire first. Suffering. And so that's why, like, you know, I'm thinking right now, John 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father. He said, don't take them out of the world, just keep them from the Holy One. Protect them. Sanctify them in the Word. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Sound familiar? He said, don't take them out. Leave them. Sanctify them. Put them through the crucible. Let them suffer. He's also the same one that said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why would he allow it? For this very reason, that rescuing requires suffering. And as this blog pointed out, suffering in is good. In the moment, it seems harsh, but it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. In the moment, it feels harsh. So dwell on that. You'll be glad you did, I promise. So as the Spirit reminded us on Sunday up here on the board, the faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. True faith implies patience if it's going to show itself as true faith. Eventually, we will receive the things of God. If everything were given to us at once, there's no real test of faith, therefore no faith required. I was thinking about that on the topic of patience because we're still reviewing Sunday's message. If we run short on patience, we fall back on the most fundamental commandment of all, love. You know what I'm talking about. I think I'm going to choke that person out like right now. (laughs) But my objective love for them says, no, I'm going to go home instead and pray for them because that's the right thing to do for everyone involved. And so love sort of trumps it up here on the board on this topic. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, part A. Love is patient. So if you're running short on patience, resort back to the least common denominator, love. Remember the commandment to love. And patience will flow forth. 
Galatians 5.22, Part A, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Again, the good Lord, as He rescues us, commands us to be patient for our own good. Patience, obviously, is the result of faith, which we just talked about. He may even ordain suffering in your life in order to test it for good measure. Go to James 5, verse 7. James 5, verse 7. He may even ordain suffering in your life in order to test it for good measure. He might say to you, oh, you don't like it, huh? How about another week? Oh, it's been a week. You're still complaining. Huh? You don't like it? How about two? Oh, you're still complaining? After three? How about we make it two months? You getting the point yet? <laughs> James 5, 7. Sounds like those times when you kept talking back to your parents. Remember? No, it was just me, apparently. <clears throat> James 5, 7. Be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. In other words, it's up to God's divine provision, His grace, which is His will, His timing, always. We just wait and trust the Lord. Didn't I just describe the fundamental aspect of faith? We wait and trust in the Lord. That's it. That, if you net, net that out, practically speaking, that translates into patience. So patience is obviously a function of faith. And that has to be tested. And so testing our faith often is a test of patience. So here's a summary point from Sunday's message up here on the board. A patient person is a sanctified person. If you want to know if you've been growing up in the faith, how if you're looking for that litmus test, not just love, you know. What about patience? It's a good indicator that you're growing up. Right? It's a good indicator that you're growing up, that your faith is real. Because if you say you have faith, but you lack patience, what say you of your faith then? It's probably not real. It's probably a delusion. And so patience really is another good litmus test for your own sanctification. A patient person, person is a sanctified person. Here's a principle from, I guess, years ago, Scott. You plucked this out of the annals of our messages the Spirit brought to the forefront on Sunday up here on the board. Again, I alluded to this earlier. God anneals our faith. Sanctification is like the annealing of metal. As believers, we must be worked to the glory of God. He bends us incrementally, adds heat under pressure, and then gives us time to cool down. And in the end, each iteration makes us stronger, more resolute in our faith. As the Spirit closed up on Sunday, he gave us some additional encouragement up here on the board. The hope and patience, whether in this life or the next, the enduring believer, the one who lives long-spirited and with cheerful endurance by grace through faith, 
will be blessed by God, who is full of compassion and mercy. He wants this for us. But he tells us the game. He wants us to endure. But he tells us what he's going to do to develop that endurance in us. We're going to be put to the fire so that the proof of our faith anneals us, convicts us of our own faith, makes us that much stronger. Let's look at some scripture. Go to Lamentations 3.25. Lamentations 3, verse 25 And we're going to move on. Lamentations 3.25. And as you can see, if you were here on Sunday, I am way more patient than Scott. Because this was right about the time he's like... I'm on my thing. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get you. <laughs> See what happens? <laughs> Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who what? Wait for him. That's like an, that's like an overarching statement. Just, I, just trust me on this one, will you? Be patient. Let me do my thing. The Lord is good. I'll be good to you. I promise. What I'm doing to you, what's Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good for those who love him. Wait on him. Trust him. Love him. He's good to you. The Lord is good to those who what? Wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. That's beautiful. Beautiful counsel from the Word of God. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Here's another passage worth reading on the topic of patience up here on the board. Romans 8, 24 and 25, just around the corner from 8, 28. Kind of a lead up. And the Amplified, For in this hope we were saved by faith, but hope, the object of which is seen, is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it with patience and composure. So let's transition now from Sunday's message to the rest of our curriculum. Up here on the board as a reminder, and we're just covering this past month, just a lot of moving parts. The Spirit said, take a deep breath. Let's cover where we've been. We just covered, we're going from bottoms up, obviously, because this was chronologically listed. We just looked at the message, Supernatural Fruit of Patience. Next is the blog, uh, titled, A Grateful Heart is a Blessed Heart. We have the following principle up here on the board from that blog. A grateful heart is a blessed heart. While the self-righteous reject mercy on the premise that it's unnecessary, in other words, what do I need mercy for? I'm pretty... A-OK as I am, that's arrogance incarnate. While they reject mercy on the premise that it's unnecessary, a repentant sinner thirsts for it and thanks God daily for receiving it. I sin every day, 
way more than I would like to. Sometimes it's, it's like if I was to run around the house, it would chase me. You follow? You get the picture? Like you're trying to get, I don't know what Tammy's going through right now, but she's like, oh, yeah. Right? Like you try to get away from it even, and it's like chasing you. It's like, get off of me. Leave me alone. You, the thoughts, right? The fiery, the thoughts? I don't know. I have awful thoughts some days, and I'm like, just get away from me. I can't escape it. I need what? Rescue. So I don't know about you, but I'm really, really thankful for the gift of repentance because we know that is given by grace as well. I'm really, really grateful daily for the ability to just, you know, pick up my bootstraps and continue on. And I'm just grateful. Um, in other words, a humble person lives in gratitude always. Humility, as we know, gives us ears to hear. Um, something the Spirit uh, spoke to in this blog appeared on the board, another excerpt from the blog. It's from the depths of our deepest despair that the Lord calls to us and we hear his blessed voice saying, Repent. This lesson was so important to Jesus that he taught it through both a parable and narrative. Speaking of such, go to Luke 7:40. Luke 7 verse 40. It's from the depths of our deepest despair that the Lord calls to us and we hear his blessed voice saying, "Repent." This lesson was so important to Jesus that he taught it through both a parable and a narrative. Luke 7:40 And Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher A certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay he canceled the debt of both Now which of them will love him more Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Remember, that was a prostitute. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Right? In other words, think about it. He's talking to a Pharisee right there. That's Simon. And Simon thought, man, what do I need to be forgiven for? I'm pretty darn righteous. But he was forgiven little in his own head, loves little. That's the problem. The prostitute, in the meantime, was weeping, was just elated, overwhelmed, just to be in the presence of her Lord. Her sins were huge. 
So she loved him for the forgiveness that he represented. That's an incredible message there. What was the overarching theme of that blog, though, up here on the board? The more humble and repentant you are on a daily basis even, the more you will abide in God's precious love experientially. The more humble and repentant you are on a daily basis even, the more you will abide in God's precious love experientially. Now, I'm not ever going to teach you that you're supposed to be counting your sins. You'd spend all day. This is an attitude. This is a repentant heart. This is someone who lays them, prostrates themselves before the Lord in humility and says, I know that I'm a sinner. I can't even count the sins. Will you have me? And he says, absolutely. Absolutely. Come enjoy the fullness of my joy. That's what I want. I want your love. I want your love because you know how much, even in your finite brain, how much you've been forgiven. And you don't even know the half of it. You can't even remember the half of it. Matter of fact, a lot of us have selective memory. <laughs> right? Did that? <laughs> so this is why we are commanded to repent. It's for our own good. It's for our own good. Speaking of this, or speaking of, this leads us to our next blog, which was titled The Sphere of God, which began with this dialogue, if you remember, The Sphere of God. Trust me. Why should I trust you? Because I love you. That's the conversation we have with God. I mean, who loves us like he does? No one. Who should we trust implicitly? Him. Who do we tend to trust more than him? Ourselves. Our own judgment. God forbid we go like this. What do you think? Pick. Th do this. Ready? Right? Get it? You see it? Did you see it? Nobody? Brendan? As we've learned so many times in the past, the sphere of God is tantamount. Same thing, for all intents and purposes, to the sphere of love, since God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Mm -hmm. All right, moving along now, we reflect upon the blog, The Search for Peace. Let's begin with a key passage the Spirit had me include in that blog. Go to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Again, I told you a lot of moving parts. We're covering a lot of ground. A month worth of messages and blogs. It's a lot, but hopefully you're seeing the theme. Let's begin with this passage. Matthew eleven twenty eight. The search for peace. That was the name of the blog. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
So even though Jesus is always available to us, we don't always abide in him experientially, even though we have passages like that, nice reminders of his heart towards us, his rescuing nature, if you want to call it that, his desire to deliver us. We don't always abide in it experientially. And as a result, we lose our peace. And then we go searching. Up here on the board, the search for peace. It's not that peace is necessarily hard to find. Not strictly speaking. It's difficult in the sense that we have the vestiges of sin. We have this old sin nature. We have that nasty roommate who will free me from this body of death. We have that thing, so it's hard in that sense. But theologically speaking, technically speaking, the way is pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. But anyways, it's not that peace is necessarily hard to find. It's that man's arrogance makes him blind. Solomon had a lot to say about this type of searching. In the end, he penned an entire book in the Bible describing the futility of striving after the wind. Ultimately, Solomon, after striving after the wind, to exhaustion, ended up the way everyone guilty of this folly ends up. He hated life. That's a terrible place to be. Go to Ecclesiastes 2.17. Ecclesiastes 2.17. In his opening summary, if you would, like, it's all for naught. It's all striving after the wind. Vanity of vanities. I, it got so bad for me, I hated life. Some of you are like, yeah, that was me. That was me yesterday. <laughs> right? That's me every other day. I don't know. I'm being funny, but... Ecclesiastes 2.17. Solomon wrote this. What did he say? Wisest man of his time. So I hated life. Ouch. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. In other words, I've done it all. I've done all these experiments. I've jotted them down for you, by the way. Here they are in the book of Ecclesiastes. I've done it all. And at the end of it, if I tried to do it myself, all these experiments outside of the grace of God, I ended up hating life. And that's us a lot of days. We lose our peace because we are attracted to the world. And the world gets its hooks in us and we spend time and moments in the world. And the longer we spend over there, the more we hate life. It's the end result. Guaranteed. Especially for a believer. Because a believer is held to a higher standard, of course. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I was thinking about that. How very far away from the good intentions of God as reflected in our curriculum this past month. Think about God saying, I don't want you to hate life. I want you to love me. And I want the fullness of my son's joy to reside in you. I want you to abide in gratitude. I want you to be set free. 
want the truth to do that thing. My son prayed for that, remember? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I want them to know the word. I don't want you to hate life, my children. I want you to love it. That I gave it to you, especially your new life in Christ Jesus. So I just looked at that and said, geez, what a, what a contrast. I hated life versus what God's trying to develop just in the past month here from this pulpit and from the blogs. Literally the exact opposite. And so it seems Solomon has given us foresight, you know, that we do well to ponder long and hard. You know, maybe he's, maybe the Spirit's saying, hey, maybe you should stop experimenting. Maybe you should just, you know, instead of, instead of developing your own wisdom on every subject, maybe you should just take some things at face value. Maybe you shouldn't run this race to exhaustion that you're on, the one that distrusts God, the one that has no faith, the one that's self-motivating instead of Christ-motivating. Maybe, maybe you should just step back for a moment and say, is it worth it? Because we only live, what, 70, 80, 90 years, right? I mean, it's not, life is short. And are you just going to consume another year? And then another one? You know, and then another one? And wonder why and where the heck did your peace go? Why you can't find any peace? Why that promise that the world gave you about, well, if I get the right job and the right trophy wife or the trophy husband and the, the white picket fence with the two and a half kids and the cat and the dog and, and the car in the driveway, and actually three cars and an SUV and the driveway and a tractor and a lawnmower. And a, if I get all that kind of stuff, then, then I'll stop striving after the wind. Then I will seek and get my peace. Or maybe even worse, I think that those things will give me that before I have any relationship with God. Solomon says, save your breath, save your time. I've been there, done that. Nobody in here is even going to come close to having what Solomon had. You're never going to be as rich as him. You're never going to be as wise as him. You're not even going to have as many partners as him. You're not going to have any of it. You're not going to do as much work as he did. You're not even going to come close and what did he say? He said, I exhausted myself. This is how it ends. Trust me. So, just saying. So, conclusion of that blog up here on the board, the search for peace. There's no reason to fret over the difficulty of finding peace. However, there's only one way we can ever be successful in this quest. It begins with humility and is sourced solely by the Lord. It begins with humility and is sourced solely by the Lord. Where do we find our peace? Go to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Probably not going to finish this message, but that's okay. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Paul wrote this. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. 
Where does peace come from? Him. God gives grace to who? Okay. Humility. Peace comes from humility and is sourced solely by the Lord. That's the point on the board. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you implication and humility. You'll receive it. Give you peace. He's the Lord of peace. He's the master of peace, in other words. He's the source of peace. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. After this blog, we were given a magnificent special Resurrection Sunday special, which always is pretty much overwhelming. This message began with this verse. Go to 2 Corinthians 9.15. 2 Corinthians 9.15. This is where this one started, this message. The Resurrection Sunday special message. Speaking of grace gifts. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We've looked at the original language on that in the past. That means you cannot put that thing, you can't bound it. It's impossible for us to fully comprehend it. It's beyond our comprehension. That is Jesus Christ. He is the gift. Without the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we learn that the gospel would be null and void up here on the board, and it's an ancient truth. The gospel transcends human history as we think of it, for it was planned by God from eternity past. God has always known that his creatures would fall and that he would save them. There was never a time where salvation wasn't an option, for God is immutable. Fancy word for he never changes. And the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. Hebrews 13.8 So on Resurrection Sunday this year, the Spirit elevated our thinking once again up to that big picture. So think of it this way. Look at the big picture. Look at the salvific plan of God. Look at what I've done for you. Before human history even began, this was all ordained. This wasn't per chance. It didn't, no one got lucky. I ordained the whole of it. So transcendence, this idea of transcendence was a word that was used often in that message because it really describes the type of perspective God wants us to have for freedom's sake. He said, look, if you're down here in the weeds, you're going to get bound up. You're not going to see that big picture that sets you free. Elevate your thinking. Transcend your thinking. Think more like I think, and then you'll see it pretty plainly, and you'll be set free by it. So God wants us to reflect upon the fact that regardless of what we hear about in this world, the truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin, regardless of what we hear otherwise, our hope is secured as is our victory in Christ, up here on the board. Christ's resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is our proof that he overcame death <coughs> itself. Death had no hold on him, therefore he is victorious over it, as are we being baptized into union with him at salvation. The victory was won when Jesus overcame death itself. Death no longer has its sting Therefore, any sting we might experience in time is nothing but a phantom. 
And we ended that beautiful message with a reading of, excuse me, Victory in Jesus up here on the board. Here's the first stanza. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on cavalry to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. And finally, and I'll just get as far as I can because we're just about out of time. In our review of this past month's message, maybe we can at least connect back to it, we have our most current mini-series titled The Other Side of Grace. And so this has been, the seven parts has been sprinkled throughout the, the, the past month. Um, so let's try to at least connect back to where we were a month ago um, before that, even that special series was introduced um, with whatever time we have left. As you may recall, we have looked at two Old Testament characters, namely Jonah and then Job. If you remember, with Jonah, this was parts probably one through three or four, with Jonah, we paid particularly close attention to the plant, to the plant that God had put over him for a short time. And this drew our attention to the plant itself, the instrument that God used by grace to provide blessings to the undeserving Jonah. And we went like this. Hmm. We tend to default as humans to relate to the other human in the story. But the Spirit said, let's turn it around. Let's look at the other side of grace. Instead of just relating to Jonah being a brat, God putting something and God taking something away, what about the instrument itself that God used to provide a grace blessing to someone who otherwise is rightly undeserving? What about if we think about the plant? And so we related to that plant, pondering how we too might serve the Lord as givers of grace. Therefore, become a source of blessing in someone else's life. With Job, we stepped back and pondered the overall big picture perspective of righteousness itself, regardless of circumstance. Regardless of circumstance. If you recall, Satan's accusation was that the only reason Job was blameless and upright was because God had blessed his socks off. I think I know a few Christians, so-called Christians, that would literally fit that bill. Oh, they love God, but I really do wonder sometimes, what if God took it all away? Remember he asked us that? Name the top three things that you care about in this life. What if God took them away tomorrow? How would you make out? Would Satan be right about you? That was the question. What if God said, I'm going to take your job, I'm going to take that house, I'm going to take your car, I'm going to take your spouse, I'm going to take your kids, I'm going to take your dog, I'm even going to kill your cat. All at once. How would you fare? That was the question. Like, it shouldn't matter. If you trust the Lord, you trust the Lord. That was the whole point. Satan was saying, no, 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 that trust that Job has, the so-called blame, it's provisional. The only reason he trusts you, the only reason he has this faith you put him up to, that you're proffering him forth on, uh, 
is because you blessed him. Take it all away and he'll curse you to your face. Go to Job, uh, actually, Job, go to Job 121 and I'll close because we're out of time. Yeah. How did Job respond? How did Job respond? And so this is part of the theme that we started off with this evening. I'm out of time, but uh, this is part of this theme. It's real. There are going to be times you won't probably do have to go through what Job went through because Job had Satan himself on top of him, which is pretty nasty. But you can relate to him and say, you know what, for, for a time, look at him. For a time, obviously he, had, he, had, he was uh, very wealthy. He had like 10 kids. He had a, a spouse. He had a nice you know, little routine going for himself, right? Life was good. Satan said, take it away and he'll curse you to your face. God took it away and what did he say? Uh, you tell me, Job 1.21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Didn't matter, did it? And that's exactly what God said to Satan. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong. This man has faith that can withstand you, Satan. And I'm going to prove it. And all the angels were rubbernecking. And we get to read about it. Thousands of years later, this is arguably the first book written, by the way, in the whole Bible. Thousands of years later, we get to read it and we get to relate to it. We get to rubberneck into Job's life and go, gee, you know, I don't know. Maybe my, te- my faith really does need to be tested. Maybe in my own limited mind, I would say, yeah, I probably would fail that test. So then you know that God has to put you to the fire to anneal your faith. You know it for yourself. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, our homes, Father, and your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.